deep well, right? This is week four of our series. And how do we rest, right? How do we enter into a Sabbath rest? Uh, last week, Roy did a, had a phenomenal sermon on the importance of corporate worship. And today, we're going to talk about the Word, the Word of God. What is it? How do we approach it? How should we engage it? But before we do, I would love for us to bow our heads and to pray. Lord, thank you uh, for the privilege to speak. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the joy of knowing you. Well, I, I pray as we, as we speak, as we listen, as we have a conversation about your word. Oh, Jesus, you'd just be our treasure. There'd be a way in which, uh, as we learn, you'd be set apart in our hearts as Lord. We would recognize we have no good apart from you. So, Lord, as, as I speak and as you teach, uh, change our hearts. Remind us of your faithfulness towards us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So I had this uh, unfortunate phase of life uh, a few years after I graduated uh, from college, and I like to call it my, uh, my surfer phase, right? Um, here's a picture of, uh, of me in the midst of my surfer phase. Oh, gosh. Um, and uh, I went all in. I, I went all in. I had graduated a couple years earlier, and I was surfing a lot. I, I bleached the hair. And, uh, you know, to my everlasting shame, it seems like a number of pictures from this era of my life have survived. The only good thing, however, that, that came out of this surfer phase was this was when I met my wife, Nicole, right? And uh, fantastic, th great story. Uh, we were actually kind of introduced by her, her aunt, who really wanted to play matchmaker, and we really didn't want her to be part of the process. And, and so she introduced us. I was actually working at a church down in San Luis Obispo, uh, leading the children's and youth ministries there. And we were introduced, and I really thought Nicole was just like a stone-cold fox. Um, and I wanted to get to know her better, but I didn't have any way of getting to know her. So here's what I did. In a stroke of brilliance, I looked her up on MySpace. Okay? And, and for any of you who have done this, uh, you feel kind of creepy when you do it, you know? I found her on MySpace, and um, we both kind of wanted to get to know each other a little bit better. I didn't have her phone number. I didn't know if she'd show up at church again, so I sent her a message on MySpace, right? Really slick. Anyways, this started a conversation uh, between us, and so there would be days when, as we're trying to figure out when we're going to hang out, when we're going to kind of go on our first date. This is how we, we communicated. And so in the evening after work, I would pull out my, my brick of a laptop. I would open it up hoping there was a new message from Nicole. And if there was, it was like time stopped. And I would be laser focused, locked in, because I wanted to know what she had to say. And I would pour over the words, right? I would think, well, what does she mean by this? Have a nice day. Does she mean have a nice day or have a nice day, right? <laughs> Uh, right? It wasn't something that I would just read once. I would read it over and over because there was something about those words. One, I wanted to know, hey, I want to know her better. Is there any indication that I can know her better from these words? And two, as I'm reading, I want to know if there's any indication about how she feels towards me. 
And, and we know this phenomenon. Many of us, if you've ever received like a love letter or maybe uh, a note from someone you admire or who you really want to admire you, right? You don't read it just once and kind of discard it, right? We fixate on it. We turn it over in our minds. We think about it even when we're not reading it. We go back to it over and over and over again. Because what we're reading is a reflection of the person who sent it. And we really want to know, as we read, if there is any indication in those words about how they feel towards us. Now, I had you open to Psalm 1. Uh, in Psalms chapter 1, right, we, we, we hear a description of the righteous person, right, the righteous man. And it says in verses 2 and 3, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Right? The psalmist writes, uh, the delight of the righteous man is in the law of the Lord. Over and over and over again, he's meditating on the words of God. And I think for many of us, we think like, seriously? Night and day? Are you kidding me? I have trouble opening my Bible for five minutes in the morning, right? But it says, inasmuch as he's meditating night and day on the law of the Lord, right, the, the words of God, he will be like a tree firmly planted next to the life source, right? It bears fruit, right? And all that he does, he prospers. And, and I expect this morning as we're here and we're, we're listening to these words, we're probably thinking something like, gosh, that sounds, that sounds really nice. I wonder what that feels like. I, I think for many of us, uh, you, you get here on a Sunday morning, and, and maybe you're still worn out from the week, and you're already thinking, gosh, Monday's coming. I, I don't feel refreshed. I don't feel recharged. Um, you know, this psalm is good. I understand it's the word of God, but it just does not feel like it's indicative of my personal experience. I want to talk about how do we engage uh, the scriptures today so that maybe what the psalmist writes here might actually align with our experience. That what the psalmist writes might be something that we can say, hey, I know this is true and I actually believe that it's true because my experience testifies to it. You know, over and over in the scriptures, we hear about the word of God, right? We read things. Jeremiah 23, 29, God says, Is not my word like a fire and like a hammer which shatters a rock? And we think, yeah, fire, hammer, right? Hebrews 4, 12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Yeah, a two sharper than a two-edged sword. Paul, Ephesians 6, 17, right, in describing the armor of God, describes the word of God as the sword of the spirit. And we think, yes, the word is powerful. Fire, hammer, sword, right, shattering rocks. And then we look at our own Bibles. Huh. Fire, huh? You don't say. Hammer? Really? 
I think for many of us, we read this, and I think it's really healthy and helpful for us to address that when we think of the scriptures, when we think about the word of God, oftentimes excitement or power, those words don't automatically come to mind. I I think it's healthy for us to address the fact that for many of us, when we think about the Bible, sometimes words like confusing, maybe indifferent, maybe obligation, maybe guilt come to mind. You know, for me, I, I, I grew up uh, in a non-Christian home. It wasn't until late in my teen years that I, uh, I met the Lord. I, I understood Jesus, and I started to see him and his words and his teaching and his life and his perfect works on the cross as being a beautiful thing, not just for people in general, but for me. And so as I started to understand uh, what it was to live in community, to do some of these things that we've been talking about in this series— I started to read my Bible, and and I'll be honest, I didn't get it. It was utterly confusing for me. I'd be sitting with guys, they'd be talking about all these things they've learned over the course of their life, and and I'm here wondering, like, hey, what are these names and numbers in the top right corner? You know, uh, what's going to happen to John at 316? I I don't know. I I better read and find out. I, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And for me, I had heard bits and pieces of the scriptures throughout my life. I, I knew some stories, um, but for the most part, they just kind of existed in this big gray area. Just disconnected stories, somehow relating to God. Uh, I knew somehow it related to me, but for the most part, I, I couldn't tell you the story. I couldn't tell you about what happened from Genesis to Revelation. I didn't really know what it was all about. And again, I think for many of us, we might know a lot about individual stories, but if we were asked, hey, who came first, Ezra or Hezekiah? We'd say, I know the names, but they just kind of exist in that gray area I call the Old Testament, right? Where the pages are still really crisp and clean in my Bible. I didn't understand that all of the scriptures pointed to something, namely someone. And I don't know if you guys have ever uh, seen that movie, The Sixth Sense, right? How many of you have seen that movie? It's been out for like 17 or 18 years now. Can you believe that? I won't spoil it for you. It, it's decent. But if, as you watch that movie, you, you, for the first time, you, you watch it, you watch it, you watch it. Bruce Willis's character, Dr. Malcolm Crowe, there's something about him that you don't realize until the very end of the movie. And when you get to the end of the movie, there's this shock-surprise ending that changes the way you see the whole thing up to that point. And you cannot, whether you want to or not, watch the movie a second time in the same way. I think the scriptures are similar. You open up the Bible, if you start reading in Genesis, you see lots of names, people, places, and you wonder what sometimes is going on. And then you get to the the New Testament, and you see Jesus. And you understand that all that's been written has been leading up to him. It is impossible, after seeing the beauty of Christ and understanding what the New Testament says about him, who he is, what he's done, and what it means for us, it is impossible for us to read the Old Testament the same way. 
Our first point, if you're taking notes, uh, you can fill this in. Our first point, we engage the scriptures primarily to encounter Jesus. Right? Before we, we talk about application, before we talk about what do I do with the scriptures, right? Or what do I need to learn about the scriptures? We engage the scriptures to encounter Jesus. Our other two points will come from this point, to encounter Jesus. Now, as, as we read the Bible, we need to ask ourselves a question very early on. Is the Bible basically about me and what I'm supposed to do? Or is the Bible basically about Jesus? And it's a really important question to ask because it will change the way that we engage the scriptures. Here, here's an example, right? Well-known story for, for those of you who uh, grew up going to Sunday school. You probably know the story of David and Goliath really well, right? 1 Samuel 17, here's a little context. David is a shepherd boy. He's grown up in a family with a number of older brothers who are older than him. He's overlooked, often mistreated. He is the one who is in charge of the sheep. And his brothers have gone out to war with the Israelite army who are doing battle against the Philistines, right? And now battle lines are drawn in the Valley of Elah. And for days, these two armies are taunting each other. No fighting has actually occurred yet. But Oftentimes, in those days, instead of full armies engaging in war, oftentimes each army would send forth a delegate, a champion, and the battle would be decided by two men, a champion from each side. Well, as many of you might know, the champion from Goliath's name, from, from Gath, was named Goliath, and he was a large man. He was so imposing, the Israelites understood, we don't have anyone that can fight him and win. And so for 40 days, these battle lines are drawn, and Goliath comes forth from the camp of the Philistines and taunts the army of Israel. Well, as the story goes, David is coming to bring supplies for his older brothers to check in on them for, the, for their father. And to make a long story short, he actually volunteers to go fight this giant, to fight Goliath. And he beats him. Right? You guys know the story. He beats them. The Israelites have won the battle because David defeated Goliath. Against all odds, young boy, large giant. And I think in the past when I've heard this story taught or preached, oftentimes the application, the takeaway is something like, be like David and go defeat those giants in your life by faith. And we get really excited and think, yeah, I can do that. I can really do that. David could do it. I just need to have more faith. I need to get out there and defeat those giants in my life. And we walk out of church or whatever ministry we're part of, and then inevitably we're faced with that giant, which we have up to that point never been able to conquer. And we realize, wait a second, I'm still really scared. I'm still fearful. I still feel like I don't actually have what it takes to defeat this thing in my life. And you go back to the story and think, wait, what happened? What went wrong? Why, why is it David could defeat Goliath, but I still cannot defeat this giant in my life? And you think, wait a second, David, uh, he, he was, he was uh, someone who was despised by those around him. He was a young boy who was dismissed by his brothers. He was an individual who was looked on as weak, who was overlooked. 
He was born in the tribe of Judah. He grew up and was born in Bethlehem. He had such a great faith that he went into battle and defeated a giant that no one else could defeat on their own. And the victory of David was imputed to all the people who identified with him. And we start thinking, wait a second, are we talking about David here? Are we talking about the Christ? Are we talking about Jesus? See, I think for us, we're always told, hey, be like David. Go conquer that giant, which is unconquerable in your life. And for us to properly understand the story, we need to understand that we shouldn't align ourselves with David. We need to understand that we should align ourselves with the Israelites who couldn't defeat the giant. We didn't have what it takes. We actually needed someone to defeat the giant for us and to have the victory, the ultimate victory of that thing we couldn't do on our own given to us because we identify with him. Is the Bible basically about you and what you're supposed to do, or is it basically about Jesus? Now, in John 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem at one of the high feasts, one of the, the, high, um, the high holidays, and he's uh, conversing with the Pharisees, right? And, and he kind of rebukes them and says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, you Pharisees, you scribes are so devoted to looking deeply in the word because you think that somehow by your deep study, you are going to achieve eternal life. If you know enough, you're going to achieve eternal life. He says in verse 40, but these things testify about me. Those things, those words that you study, they actually testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And in case there were some scribes or Pharisees in the rooms, who this, what he was saying was unclear, he adds this zinger for, uh, six verses later, 546. He says, For if you believed Moses, which everyone in that room would have said, yes, we absolutely believe Moses. They built their government around the teaching of Moses, what God had handed to Moses. Everything, their life was based on the teachings of Moses, what God had told Moses in the law. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now, Jesus says Mo Moses wrote about him. You might be flipping back to the Torah, right, the first five books of your Bible, and saying, I don't see Jesus' name anywhere. I can imagine Pharisees in that room thinking, get the scroll of Isaiah. We'll show you you're not in here. Look, your name doesn't show up. And Jesus would probably respond like, you're not going to find my name in there but I am all over it. I am all over your texts. They point to me. A little later on, Jesus says, after he's been crucified, he is walking with two men after the, the, the celebration of the Passover week. There's two men in Luke 24 who are walking back to the town of Emmaus. We know one of their name is Cleopas, and they don't recognize who Jesus is. They don't recognize that this man they're walking with is the resurrected Christ. They're walking along, and in Luke 24, 27, it says this. And then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them, that as Jesus explained to these two men, 
all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, these villages are only about seven miles apart. They must have been walking really, really slow. He explained to them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And Jesus himself says, hey, it all leads to me. It's all pointing towards me. And in the New Testament, we have a guy, uh, Paul, right? Probably one of our best-known apostles. You know, in Philippians 3, he, he lists off all these qualifications of why, uh, of basically why he is the best, why he has things to boast about, why he has things he can say that make him great. And in Philippians 3.8, he says simply this, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that, that I may gain Christ. He says it's all about Jesus. And for us today, it is all about knowing Jesus. The reason we engage the scriptures is to encounter him. First and foremost, N.T. Wright, a Christian author, he says, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama which has him as the central character. The scriptures say that there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is all about that beautiful man, Jesus Christ. If it's all about Jesus, it's all about us being connected to him, right? We looked at Psalm 1, we talked about the tree, we talked about being connected to the life source. If we're the tree in that metaphor, first and foremost, before we can expect anything to come from us, any fruit, any produce, anything that we would say, this is what a tree is meant for, we have got to be connected to the life source, which again is Christ. We engage the scriptures to encounter Jesus. Number two we engage the scriptures to be transformed, not just informed. Ultimately, we engage the scriptures to be transformed. Now, here's maybe a, a helpful uh, diagnostic question I share with a lot of our students on campus. When you read the Bible, are you more interested in knowing the word of God or are you more interested in knowing the God of the Word? Are you more interested in knowing the Word of God, or are you more interested in actually knowing the God who is behind those words? Your honest answer to that question will reveal two radically different approaches to the text. And I think for us, you know, working at UC Davis uh, in a very academic context, it's easy uh, for us to think, hey, knowledge is power, information is, is the best. We, we need to know, we need to get our facts straight, we need to have correct doctrine, sound theology, and I would say absolutely, yes, we have got to have those things. I'm not saying we don't pursue information. I'm saying 
It's not primary. We will get it, but it's not our primary drive. Our goal is not information, but transformation. So I'm going to tell you a story. It's an, it's an embarrassing story. Um, I was a fairly young believer in 2004. I was, I was finishing up my undergrad at Cal Poly, and I was zealous to know. I, I felt like I had a lot of catching up to do because the people around me always seemed so much smarter. Um, again, I'm still kind of learning how to navigate the Bible, and I was still holding an old King James Bible. That was kind of like my main Bible I used, the author, authorized version, 400-year-old translation. And I thought, I know, I am going to memorize in 2004 one verse every day for the entire year. I'm going to memorize a verse a day. And so I tried it. And uh, I started out January 1st. I got out my 3x5 flashcards, top left corner, day one. Put a one, wrote the reference on the front. I don't remember what it was. Um, flipped it over, wrote the verse, and in the morning I would review the verse, and in the evening I would review it again. Day two, number two, next reference, next verse, review day one and day two. I continued this until day 216, and I was miserable. I hated it. You guys, I was such a chore to be around. You know, the only fruit from that discipline, the only external proof that I was in the scriptures was how I would try to subtly slip into conversation the fact that I was doing it. I was pathetic. I was miserable. It was a Thursday night. Uh, There's also a grad in San Luis Obispo. We'd go line dancing every Thursday, and I came home. I see a fist pump. All right. Um, We uh, we would go. I'd come back about midnight, one in the morning, and I realized on that Thursday, oh no, I haven't done my verse for today. So begrudgingly, I pull out my flashcards, 216, humph, right? Uh, Write down the reference, write down the thing, and I thought, you know, maybe in the first moment of clarity I had that year, why am I doing this? I hate this. And so I did probably the best thing I could have done. I took that stack, which was basically an homage to my pride, and I threw it in the trash can. I just tossed it. And I committed to not memorizing a verse until I could do it with a good heart. I could approach it joyfully because I wanted to do it, not because I thought I should or because I really wanted to get smart and impress people. And I think there's something about that that appeals to us. We want to be seen as smart. We want to be seen as knowledgeable. But again, we don't engage the scriptures for information. We do it to be transformed, to be changed. Again, this this relates to our first point to be connected to Christ, to encounter Jesus. We can position ourselves for growth by reading, by studying, by enjoying the scriptures, but our transformation is not something that we can do. We see this over and over in the scriptures. One example, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writing to this this young Corinthian church says, hey, uh, I, I planted, I planted a seed in you guys, but it was Apollos who watered it. It's Apollos who came along to nurture you, to help cultivate this thing I planted. But it was God who causes the growth. Verse 7, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but it's God who causes the growth, right? 
Elsewhere, Paul writes, uh, Philippians 2, I don't think it's on the PowerPoint, right? Chapter 2, we often hear people say, uh, 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Let's get to it, folks. Work out your, do it. Change. Make changes in your life. We almost always divorce Philippians 2.12 from what comes right after, verse 13. Let's not do it anymore. Verse 13 says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do we have a part? Yes, absolutely. Is change, transformation, growth on our shoulders to accomplish? No, absolutely not. We engage the scriptures first and foremost to encounter Jesus as a tree firmly planted to be connected to the life source. We engage the scriptures to be transformed, not just informed, Inasmuch as we are connected to that life source, we are changed. We experience changes in our life. Number three, we engage the scriptures to be equipped for ministry, to obey, to actually produce visible fruit. We engage the scriptures to be equipped for ministry. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? Verse 17. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The scriptures are from God for a purpose, so that we may be adequate and equipped, right? Adequate, this Greek word artios. When we think of the word adequate, for most of us, we might, we might insert the, the English phrase good enough or it'll do, right? Artios in the Greek means perfect. Perfectly suited for the purpose it was intended. Not good enough. Perfectly equipped for the purpose it was intended so that the man of God may be perfectly, fully furnished and equipped for good works, for ministry. The end result of understanding the scriptures is that we are equipped. We see evidence of change in our life, not because we do it, but because the Lord does it in us. James, a uh, longer passage here, James 1, uh, 22-25. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, that is, lives by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Verse 25, this man will be blessed in what he does. Psalm 1-3, he will be prosperous in whatever he does. There is this idea that inasmuch as one, we are connected to Jesus, we encounter him in the scriptures, we are the tree connected to the life source, firmly planted by streams of water, we will too be changed. We will be transformed inasmuch as we are connected to him. And because we are connected to him, we will, three, be equipped for ministry. 
and we cannot get those confused. I think for many of us, if you're anything like me, you're a natural doer, performer. You find value in the fact that you can produce with your hands. You, you like to point to what you do as evidence of your self-worth. When was the last time you asked someone to describe themselves and they started out with anything other than a function, right? Hey, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm a plumber. That's a function. That's what you do. I'm an engineer. I'm a teacher. We are so trained to think about our self-worth, our value, is only in line with our function, with what we do. And I think for many of us, the performers of us in the room who find value in what we do, who find our identity in what we do, we can read a passage like James 1, 22 to 25 and say, all right, good, this is what I've been waiting for, permission to go do. The doing as a Christian, the obedience as a Christian, the equipped, being equipped for ministry as a Christian is a good thing. But it only comes from being connected to the source of life. That is Jesus Christ. On the night before he was uh, crucified, he said these words to his disciples, John 15, 5. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Check out this last phrase. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law, in his word, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does he prospers as a church as individuals we have got to understand that the reason we approach the scriptures is to see Jesus Christ as supremely beautiful as supremely good as the ultimate object of our affection and inasmuch as God gives us eyes to see him in that way, we will be transformed. We will actually gain information. We will be transformed. And as God himself changes us because of our union, our connection, our faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us, fruit will develop in our life. I don't see orange trees out there who are being well-nourished that are really, like, I gotta make fruit, Ugh, you know. Orange trees don't try to make fruit. They make fruit by virtue of them being connected to the source of life. So it is with us. As we experience Jesus in the scriptures, we must understand that as we see him, we are changed by him. And by being changed by him, there is a natural uh, inclination of our heart to do the things to desire the things that he desires for us. And we should expect to see fruit, obedience in our life. So how do we respond to this? Right? How, what do we do? 
I think, again, for many of us, we maybe came here not sure how do I approach the word. Um, I'm not sure how I'm feeling now. It's, it's really simple. Last blank on your thing. We engage the scriptures like we actually do it, right? We engage the scriptures to encounter Jesus. We engage the scriptures to be transformed. We engage the scriptures to be equipped for ministry. What's the application? We actually do it. We actually engage the scriptures. We open up our Bibles. We read. And I think for many of us, we think, hey, easier said than done. How do I, how do, I do that? How do I make that a regular practice in my life? Let me give you four just real quick pointers. First one, make a plan. I think, I think many of us, we understand, hey, the word is good, the word is important. But when you wake up in the morning, you think, oh, yeah, I got to get the kids ready for school. Uh, I'm already late for work. Uh, whatever it is, make a plan. A friend of mine, he often says, you know, we, we don't stumble upon intimacy with Jesus. We're not just going through the course of our overbooked day and all of a sudden happen to stumble upon Christ and think, oh, what a sweet time I just had with him, right? He oftentimes gets scheduled out. We're oftentimes overcommitted. Make a plan. Schedule a time in the word. And not just when you're going to do it. Make a plan for what you're going to read. When I was a young Christian, I would open up my, my, my Bible and I would do one of these, you know, Song of Solomon again, you know? Make a plan. What are you going to read? If you're not sure, ask, ask someone, hey, here's where I am in my walk with Christ. What would you recommend I read? I think a great starter, even today, if, if you wanted it, if you weren't sure, read John's Gospel. Just read the Gospel of John to get a picture of the beauty and wonder of Christ, to see what he says about himself, to see how he interacts with people, to see God's priorities expressed in Jesus. Make a plan. The when, the what, and the where. Where are you going to do it? Take some practical steps to make a plan to get time in the Word. Number two, read for breadth and depth. Again, for us, in our information, fact-loving culture, I think for us, there's something almost kind of like sexy about knowing a passage really well, right? There's something really neat that having something that we can kind of share in Bible study and say, oh, I I recognize that because they translated it this way, it actually means this, and everyone's thinking, like, who cares, right? Read for breadth and depth. Is there a place for deep Bible study? Yes, there has to be. But also read just to enjoy the scriptures, to get a sense of that grand story arc that stretches all the way from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. Read it to enjoy it. Read it in a way that you're not putting pressure on yourself to get something out of it. I, I often find when I open the Bible and I feel like it, my time is only valuable in as much as I feel like I walked away with something to share, sometimes I, I miss the forest for the trees. And when I take that burden off myself and I just open the Bible to read it, to enjoy the story, I often walk away with a lot more than if I put some sort of academic burden on me to get something out of the text. Make a plan, read for breadth and depth. Three, don't judge the quality of your time in the Word incorrectly. As a young believer, I would often open up the Bible, I'd spend some time reading, I'd close it, 
And if I didn't feel really good about it, if I didn't have like a positive emotional response or there wasn't some devotional material in there that just really charged me up, I would think, oh, what a waste of time. Or if I didn't walk away with some really juicy tidbit that I could share or or chew on for the rest of the day, I would think, gosh, what a waste of time. And I would effectively judge my time in the word incorrectly. I think God is big, big enough, wonderful enough to actually do things in my heart that I'm not aware of. And I think for many of us, our best learning happens kind of below the surface of our awareness, right? Don't judge your time incorrectly. Just because you don't feel great or you feel super informed after a quiet time with the Lord, don't think it was a waste of time. It absolutely was not. It absolutely was not. Make a plan. Read for breadth and depth. Don't judge the quality of your time incorrectly. Fourth, finally, you have to remember this and hear it very clearly. Have a lot of grace for yourself. If, if reading the scriptures is not a practice that you do very often, if it feels tedious, confusing, boring, and you hear, you hear me up here sharing, not that I, I'm still learning all this too, don't feel like, oh man, I need to go and spend three hours in the scriptures today. Right? You, you, don't, you don't train for a marathon by running a marathon right? On day one of your training, you don't go out and run 26 miles. You lace up your sneakers, and you try to jog down the street. And if you need to, you walk. Have grace for yourself in the process. Make a plan. Read for breadth and depth. Don't judge the quality of your time incorrectly. Have grace for yourself. Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. We have to understand that we are the tree. As Christians who have understood and believed in the person of Christ, in his absolutely perfect work on the cross, his perfect work in rising from the dead for our sake. In as much as we're connected to him, we have life. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We engage the scriptures to uh, encounter Jesus, to be transformed, and to be equipped for ministry. And one of my favorite verses about the scriptures, actually, Rolly mentioned it, Colossians 3, the first part of verse 16. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let Christ's words richly dwell within you. Let them take up residency in you. Let them change you from the inside out. His word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray that as we approach the scriptures, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, the thousandth time, we'd see Jesus clearly. And inasmuch as we see him clearly, our hearts would be changed and the people around us would be effective 
by our obedience. I'm going to pray, and I think the worship team is going to come on up. So would you bow your heads with me? Father, we are uh, grateful for you. We are grateful for the love that you have for us. We're grateful for the gift of your word, the joy of knowing you. Lord, and, and I pray in the midst of a, of a talk like this, um, there, there wouldn't be uh, a sense of uh, I'm not measuring up or, or self-condemnation, but what would be heard, Lord, would be an invitation, uh, an invitation to seek your face, an invitation to, not out of obligation, but out of joy, to open up your word, to understand, Lord, that uh, it is you who saves us, it is you who changes us, it is you who equips us. Jesus, help us to see you as supremely good, as supremely beautiful today. There's no one like you. You're absolutely fearless. Thanks, Lord. Amen. We're going to enter into a, a time of response and reflection where we get to sit and just...